0: you are listening to a podcast by Lance Lambert Ministries. For more information on Lance's ministry, visit lancelambert.org. What does it mean that the Lord is King? In today's message, Lance reads scriptures from the book of Matthew and talks about the King and the reality of the kingdom. The Lord is not only born King. He is not only anointed King. He alone is worthy to be King. Matthew chapter 16, I'm going to read two or three portions this evening, from verse 13. Matthew chapter 16, from verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the parts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But who say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon bar for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he the disciples that they should tell no man that he was the Christ. And then chapter 18, verse 17, <clears throat> and if he refused to hear them, tell it unto the church. And if he refused to hear the church also, let him be unto thee as the Gentile and the publican. Verily I say unto you, What things soever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and what things soever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth, as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, There am I in the midst of them. And then chapter 28, chapter 28, verse 16. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. But the eleven disciples went into Galilee, unto the mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came to them and spake unto them, saying, All authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go ye, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Now you will remember that last week we dealt with the matters of the authorship and date uh, of this gospel according to Matthew, and then we passed on to the key to the book. And um, you have in the notes that are in your hands, you have in fact what was said in quasi form last week. I think perhaps the most important thing for those who were not there last week is just to say this, that the key to the gospel according to Matthew is very simple and even a superficial reading of the gospel must lead you to see it and that is the king and the kingdom. This is the key to the gospel according to Matthew. Um, We have said something about this word kingdom because, um, uh, as you will remember, um, the Greek word that is translated by the English word, kingdom, does not mean what so often we mean by the word kingdom. When I speak to you about the United Kingdom, you immediately think, as I have said, of Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, and England, uh, in, somehow, either in that order or in another order. But you think always of the United Kingdom in terms of territory. You do not think of the throne. But the Greek word means that first, the first idea that is conjured up in your mind is the throne. That's the first thing. Then you think of the territory and the peoples that the throne rules over. Now, if you keep that in mind, you understand much more what is meant by this word kingdom. Uh, really, we need two words to adequately convey the meaning of this word. And I have um, put it down as kingship and kingdom. Kingship. And kingdom. And if whenever you read this word, the kingdom of heaven, you think also of kingship, you will be much nearer to the root idea behind it. Jesus came, John the Baptist came crying, repent. The kingship of heaven is upon you. The kingship of heaven is upon you. The throne of God has come to you. And again, when Jesus came, the first words in his ministry were, Repent! The kingship of heaven is upon you. The throne of God has come among you. Of course, it means more than the throne of God. It means also the fact that one day that throne is going to regain and recover everything that has been lost through the fall and through Satan. Well, now, uh, we mustn't start on last week's um, uh, study all over again. But you will remember we ended by saying that there were seven uh, steps that we can trace in the Gospel according to Matthew by seven steps in the bringing in of the kingdom of God. It is the birth of Christ, the baptism and anointing of Christ, the temptation of Christ, the transfiguration of Christ, Gethsemane, his death, his resurrection. These seven steps are clearly defined for us in the gospel according to Matthew. And each one is a major stepping stone To the realization of the kingship of heaven the realization of the kingdom of heaven the bringing in not only of the throne of god but of a people who are reigning with the one who is upon the throne now that's where we ended last week we said much more than that but uh, now we go on tonight in everything, in everything, in everything we see in Christ, his history, his words, his life, his miracles, his love, his cross, we see the one who is alone worthy and capable of bringing the kingdom of heaven to us and bringing us into the kingdom of heaven. Now I cannot underline this fact enough this evening he is not only born king, he is not only anointed king, he is worthy to be That, I think, needs to be emphasized with all the emphasis we're capable of. Christ is not merely an official king occupying an official capacity or position, carrying out official duties somehow or other just a kind of dutiful responsibility being carried out in a fatalistic way. He was destined to be the king and therefore he came rather grudgingly into this world to carry out these duties for the father. No, not at all. It is not merely as I said that he was born king nor merely that he was anointed King, It is an altogether new concept of kingship that we see in Christ, a concept of kingship strangely foreign and alien to this world. No other empire, no other civilization had had ever produced a conception of kingship such as we see in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is a king altogether different. The spring, the motive spring uh, from which everything else flows is different. The the character, the power, everything is, is different. The whole conception is different. Let me put it this way. It is not arrogance, such as we associate with human kings, especially in past history. It's not pride. It's not human might. It's not political power. It is not outward pomp. It is not just mere physical pedigree and lineage, but spiritual character and inward goodness. This, I say, is a new concept. Of course, people have always felt that kings really ought to be good, and ought to have some kind of character. But history has shown us how sadly different has been the practice. Men have ruled simply because they are king. And simply because they are occupying an official capacity. There has been arrogance and pride and political power and human might all associated with it to bolster up the position to entrench them as it were in that position of kingship to as it were establish their rule over people. But it is righteousness which is the basis of Christ's throne. Truth in all its beauty. Holiness. Without which. No man shall see. The law, Absolute purity. No corruption. Or any defiling thing. <clears throat> love. Perfect love. Compassion. Mercy. The are the basis of the throne. This is the basis of this kingship that we see embodied, expressed, and realized in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not a king concerned only for his reputation. I have a feeling that some people think that Christ was very concerned for his reputation in one way or another. No, not a king concerned for his reputation and glory, not self-seeking, self-assertive, self-centered, ambitious, but a king who cares to the uttermost for his own people and is prepared, ready, to give himself, his life and his very person for their salvation and their well-being. There has never been a king like that in the whole history of the world. Someone prepared to simply give himself, to sacrifice himself for the obtaining of the elect of God the chosen covenant people of God himself. For you see, the cross is not only an historical event in time, but it is inherent within the very nature of God. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean this. Christ didn't somehow or other think about the cross. God did not suddenly say, now you've got to go to the cross and be crucified. Calvary is a principle inherent within the very nature of God. It is not within God to be self-asserted, but always giving, 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 giving. And we see this principle within this new conception of kingship. Here is a king not ready to hold back, but the cross is in him from, from before, the, before his birth. When he took that, that, that shattering uh, decision to enter into this world, it was the cross at work. He laid his glory by. He did not grasp being on an equality uh, with God, but he became a man and then humbled himself to the death of the cross. You see, the cross was in him, and Calvary is only an expression, a concrete expression of what was already in the heart of God, what is the very character of divine service and divine love. I don't know whether you understand what I'm driving at uh, there, but in actual fact it is quite important because this whole conception of kingship is bound up with Calvary. Um, God's idea of a king is not someone who, as it were, defends his throne like that, who just asserts himself, who's ambitious, who wants to hold on to his glory and wants to just, as it were, further his own reputation and glory. God's idea in kingship is a man so intrinsically great, so inherently good, so, somehow or other, inwardly capable and worthy that he can let go of the whole thing and leave it to God. And when he has let go of it all, he is never more royal. Never, never was there a greater expression of kingship than when Jesus died on the cross, and when the crowd, the mob, yelled out, To him, come down. You saved others, then come down from the cross and show us. They daunted him. But the kind of kingship that was Christ's was the kingship that was greater than just a, a, a mere temporary display of power. It was the greatness that could suffer on the cross, and pray forgive them Father for they know not what they do and endure right through to the end for the salvation of the very people who were insulting him and mocking him at the foot of that cross. That is kingship. How foreign that conception of kingship is to us. Why we all know it don't we in our own nature. Let someone cross us and we're up straight away the sort of hackles start to rise. We begin to feel that somehow someone's crossed our path. Someone has, has robbed us of our authority. Someone has, has entered into our domain. Someone or other is besmirching our reputation. It's the eye that comes up immediately. Why, you say, I can't be a doormat if I allow myself to be a doormat, if I sacrifice myself like this. Well, anyone will do anything. Oh, very well, this is an ideal. It's a wonderful ideal, of course. But, of course, it's incapable of being put into practice in a world like this. But, you see, the fact of the matter is this. The Lord Jesus put this very principle into practice. Thirty-three years of it we see in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ has not merely preached God's kingdom to us. Uh, declaring to us its laws and its its character. Nor has he merely exemplified the kingdom of heaven within himself, um, manifesting its authority and its power and and its uh, glory. But by his death and by his resurrection, he has brought us into it. He's not just held up before our eyes a wonderful picture of a utopia. He has not just said, now then, everyone, I'm different to you. It works in me, but it'll never work in you. So you all look at me and see how it works in me, but you must understand that none of you will ever be able to live this kind of life. This is beyond you. This is just a wonderful utopian ideal. None at all. He has laid down his life, and by his death and by his resurrection, he brings sinful men and women like you and me into this kingdom. We are born from above into the kingdom. Glory, oh, glory born from above into the kingdom that means we're not just taken as we are and planted in the kingdom get that we're not just taken up with all our old men and old women and planted in the kingdom to live in a kind of surroundings that are marvelously utopian and ideal but which just simply drive us mad we are born from above there is something in us of the new kingdom There is something of this kingdom of God that's got into us. We're born into the kingdom. We've we've got a, a kingdom life. We've got a kingdom nature. Let me put it another way. We've got a royal life. We've got a royal nature. We've got a royal power. We have been born of God. Now, if you take your Bible, we'll just see whether that really is so. We turn to Revelation, chapter 1, verse 6. We read the last part of verse 5. I'm reading in the revised version. Unto him that loveth us, and loosed us from our sins by his blood, and made us to be a kingdom, to be priests unto his God. And father. Now the authorized version says that we've been made kings and priests unto his God and father. Now that's because of this word which is a difficult word. <laughs> we've been made we can't say we've been made a kingship. we've been made either kings or we've been made a kingdom. Here we've got it, we've been made a kingdom and priests unto his God and father if you turn over the pages to chapter 5 verse 10 we have it again and made us them to be unto our god a kingdom and priests and they reign upon the earth turn back to colossians chapter 1 and verse 13 this wonderful verse colossians 1 13 Who delivered us out of the power of darkness, that word is authority, out of the authority of darkness, the power of darkness, and translated us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. Translated out of the power, the authority of darkness, into the kingdom of the Son of his love. Oh, how wonderful. Loosed. Our sins loosed from us by his precious blood. And we, you and I, as the, the gospel according to Matthew says, harlots, publicans, sinners. We have been made a kingdom and priests unto our God. Who else could have done it? Who else could have done it? You go on to 1 Thessalonians, uh, from Colossians, that's the next letter, 1 Thessalonians, and chapter 2, and verse 12, and we read this. To the end, that ye should walk worthily of God, who calleth you into his own kingdom and glory. He calleth you into his own kingdom and glory. And then uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. Wherefore, receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us have grace whereby we may offer service well-pleasing to God with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. All these wonderful scriptures, And they all add up to the same thing. We have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Glory be to God. He has put us into the eternal kingdom of his Son. How has he done it? He has not done it because we are worthy of it. He has not done it because we have tried to get into it. And he has taken note of our good works or our reformation. But praise be to God it is because the Lord Jesus Christ took those great steps and laid down his life and was raised again on the third day that the kingdom has been given to us and we have been born into the kingdom if you look at John and chapter 3 I think it's so well known you hardly need to look at it John chapter 3 and verse 3, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born from above or born anew, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And verse 5, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except one be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So you see, the Lord Jesus has not merely held before us a wonderful utopian ideal, even a kind of goal. No, he has laid down his life and by his death and resurrection, he has brought the kingdom to us and us to the kingdom. We are born of God into that kingdom. Now, there is one other reference here I'd like you to turn to because I think it's very interesting. It's Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9. i kept this to the last because I think it is so very interesting. I, John, your brother and partaker with you in the tribulation and kingdom and patience which are in Jesus. That's rather beautifully put, the kingdom is in Jesus. The kingdom is in Jesus. That's rather beautifully put, isn't it? You see, he has come himself and brought the kingship of heaven to us. He has brought the kingdom of God to us, the kingdom which is in Jesus. Now it is quite clear, at least to me, that God's idea concerning Israel, God's idea, God's mind uh, concerning Israel, expressed in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5 and 6, has been fulfilled through Christ in the church. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 5 and 6, we read this, Now therefore, If ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be mine own possession, or the authorised version puts rather beautifully, uh, my peculiar treasure from among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. Ye shall be... Uh, unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now this idea of God uh, concerning the children of Israel has been fulfilled by Christ in the church. For when you turn over to um, 1 Peter and chapter 2 and verse 9, we read this but ye are an elect race, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that ye may show forth the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now there you've got it, a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests. We have been made uh, a kingdom unto God uh, uh, and priests. Now it is interesting to note that Matthew is the only gospel in which the word church, Ecclesia, occurs. You know it. We've read it tonight, Matthew 16, verse 18, Matthew 18, verse 17. And he links this word church with the kingdom of heaven. If you turn back now to Matthew and chapter 16 and verse um, 19, After he has said in verse 18, I will, upon this rock, I will build my church, he says in verse 19, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now if you turn over the page to chapter, chapter 18 and uh, uh, verse 18, you read the same thing again in connection with the church. There they are saying you, What things soever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven? What things soever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven? Now that I find extremely interesting, because in other words, um, really, we see God's concept for the ancient people of God realized and fulfilled in the church by Christ Jesus. In other words, we have become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation to him, a royal priesthood an elect race, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Now, if we start to see it like that, we come back to Matthew. We are in the kingdom. The kingdom has been given to us. And we are in the kingdom. Now we begin to look at all those words that are peculiar to Matthew that we spoke about last week. First of all, we we read about the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. You find that in chapter 4 and verse 23. Chapter 4, Of Matthew, verse 23, Jesus went about in all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. Chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus went about all the cities and the villages teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And then again in chapter 24 and verse 14, the Lord says, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a testimony unto all the nations, and then shall the end come. It is the good news of the kingdom. Now, why this extraordinary phrase? Uh, It is uh, quite interesting, really why this extraordinary phrase the gospel of the kingdom oh yes the gospel concerning jesus christ we understand the gospel of our salvation we understand but the gospel of the kingdom well you see it is the good news that god's king has not only arrived on the scene Bringing the kingdom of heaven with him, but that he has gloriously won the battle and has brought such as us into it. Now that's good news. For me, at any rate, the kingdom of heaven was forever closed. I don't know about you. If you're anything like me, of course, it was closed for you also. We're all being shut up in sin. The kingdom of heaven was closed to us, but the wonderful thing is that the the good news of the kingdom is that the king has come and he has not only brought the kingdom and declared the kingdom to us, but this is the glory of it. He's brought us into it. Good news. I say that's good news. And uh, Matthew therefore speaks in uh, Matthew chapter 13 and verse 19 of the word of the kingdom. The word of the kingdom. Now this is an even more interesting uh, phrase because the same account in Mark chapter 4 verse 14, it's only the word. And in Luke chapter um, 8 and verse 11, it is the word of God. But Matthew says, when he records it, he tells us it's the word of the kingdom. Which means, in other words, that he wants us to understand that this is the aspect he wants us to see it from. It is the word of the kingdom that comes to us, that's sown in our hearts. Now, I believe we've got something to learn from this. I have, certainly, in this matter. Because I believe it is this word of the kingdom which is so much needed in our preaching. It is the dogmatic assertion, the dogmatic declaration that God's king has arrived. And not only has he arrived, he's won. That's all. Now if you look through the, uh, b- the book of the Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, you will find this is their preaching. It's not all this just come, come, you just come. It is a dogmatic declaration the one that you crucified, God has raised from the dead and is enthroned at the right hand of God the Father. It is a dogmatic declaration, it's what theologians called the Karugma. the dogmatic declaration, the proclamation, Jesus Christ is King. He is Lord of all. This is the, the note that is missing in my preaching, I think, often, and certainly in the preaching of so much. Um, uh, so many modern preachers. This tremendous declaration that God's king has not only come, but God has taken him into the glory, and he's enthroned at the right hand of God. Now you'll find this simply everywhere, simply everywhere. For it is this word of the kingdom that God commits himself to fully, And the Holy Spirit uses. Now if you turn to Acts, uh, to, well, Matthew 4, 17 we've quoted a number of times. Repent, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is upon you. Here is this dogmatic declaration, the kingship of heaven is upon you. Repent, therefore. Repent. It's come. God's king and God's kingdom are here. Now, when you turn over to Acts chapter 2, listen to the early apostles' preaching and draw your own conclusions. I say this against myself. Listen to their preaching and, as I say, draw your own conclusions. Acts chapter 2. Verse 33. Being therefore by the right hand of God exalted, And having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, it poured forth this which ye see and hear. For David ascended not into the heavens, but he himself saith, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies the footstool of thy feet. Let all the house of Israel therefore know assuredly that God hath made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom ye crucified. What a way to end a message. No appeal, no sort of toning down anything, a completely dogmatic declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord and Messiah, King and Messiah. Now, listen, now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said unto them, still in absolutely uncompromising tones, Repent ye, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, unto the remission of your sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely dogmatic declaration, dogmatic assertion. Now, if you turn to Acts chapter 17, we hear the Apostle Paul preaching. And we've got the same thing again, verse 30 and 31. Listen. The times of ignorance therefore God overlooked, but now he commandeth men that they should all everywhere repent, inasmuch as he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. Absolutely dogmatic assertion and declaration. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead and is at the right hand of God the Father, both Lord, King, and Messiah forever. Now I say this word of the kingdom is something that perhaps we as a company ought to get a little more to our knees about and ask the Lord that he would show us and help us, equip us and endure us, that we may be able more faithfully to preach the word of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. And then we have to say this, that we who have been thus saved by the grace of God (laughs) have become sons of the kingdom. This is another phrase only found in Matthew, in chapter 13, verse 38. Matthew 13, verse 38. These are the sons of the kingdom. All those of us who've been saved and born from above into the kingdom, of God are called sons of the kingdom. Your authorised version says children of the kingdom. The correct word is sons of the kingdom, not mere servants. We are not servants of the kingdom, merely. We are not just slaves, bond slaves in the kingdom. We are not even only friends of the king in the kingdom. We are not just subjects of the king. We are sons of the kingdom. Sons of the kingdom. It speaks of a most wonderful and intimate relationship. God desires to recover in us that kingly character and nature lost to us by the fall. That's what it is, sons of the kingdom. He doesn't just want us to be cringing subjects, not even just worshipping subjects. He doesn't just want us to be servants who carry out his orders. He wants us to have the same kingly character that he's got in us. He wants us to be sons of the kingdom. We are born of the king. We've got the king's nature and the king's life and the king's mind and the king's power and the king's name in us sons of the kingdom i say that to me is again very wonderful Uh, and as we own now listen you young ones as we own not only the salvation of the lord jesus christ but the kingship of the lord jesus christ in the practical circumstances of our life we grow up sons of the kingdom it is very interesting that this, this parable that deals with um, uh, the sons of the kingdom is all to do with wheat and tares growing, growing. The idea is that they're not static, they're growing, they grow up. The, the weeds grow up and the wheat grows up. And the idea is this, you and I are to grow up as sons of the kingdom. Now there's a difference between a baby and a son. A baby can be a true son, but a baby can't run father's business. But a son can. You got it? We've got to grow up. We're all God's children. We are all sons of God by faith. But God wants us to grow up so that we can administer the kingdom, so that we can have upon our shoulders something of the burden of the government of the kingdom. We may may share with him in his kingly rule. We may share his throne with him. He doesn't want mere babes prattling and enjoying themselves, as it were, in sort of heavenly nurseries. God only knows there are enough of us. And I mean, in many ways, there is a place for the nursery. There must be a place for the nursery. Well, betide if the spiritual nursery is empty, but you know we're not meant to stay in the nursery all our days. And I say only God knows how many Christians stay in, in the nursery. They've crammed their heads with knowledge, but they're mere babes. When it comes to the mysteries of the kingdom, When it comes to the keys of the kingdom, when it comes to the things to do with the kingdom, they're babes. They're in the nursery. God wants sons of the kingdom. Those who've been born of God and are growing up. They've come to maturity. Just as those weeds are growing, the sons of the evil one are growing in evil and cunning and sin so we who are children of God must grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ we must grow up in him I say to such is given the mysteries of the kingdom there's another phrase for you which again is only found in Matthew you see the mysteries are found elsewhere but it's not the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven are found here now, in chapter 13, verse 11, you've got that. The Lord Jesus says, Unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. Now, what are these mysteries? Are they the parables? If you look very carefully at this, you will find that he told the parables in this simple way so that people might be able to understand and yet couldn't understand. Of course it does refer to the parables but i think the mysteries of the kingdom are even more than is contained in the parables we've got all the seed form of everything in in the parables there what are the mysteries of the kingdom the secrets of the kingdom of heaven well there are so many secrets but you see listen you've got to grow up to understand secrets you don't tell your baby secrets, or oh you do. You tell them little secrets that, in fact, are terribly sort of mundane and, uh, and understood by everyone else. But baby thinks it's marvellous to hear something explained, to understand about something. So there's a secret, you see, in it, that apple is A-P-P-L-E. Made out of those letters, you see, and that you can learn that A is AH and P is p, and L is UH and A PUH. There's a secret for you. But all of us who are up, we think, oh, how childish. We wouldn't dream. We wouldn't call that a secret. Why, there are secrets of the universe, secrets to do with uh, electronic things, secrets to do with science, secrets to do with the human body, secrets of life, birth and life and death. All these things, they belong to us as we grow up. And it's only as we grow up that we come into the secrets. We have to grow up to a certain stage before we can understand the secrets, before they can be. Revealed to us before they can be shared with us. Why, your parents, think of the things they had to hide from you when you were a child. But as you grew up, they told you if they were good parents, they told you this and they told you that. As you grew up, to such is given the mysteries of the kingdom. We're given to understand the secrets of the kingdom. What are those secrets? Well, I think, think there are so many of them. The secrets of his, of the heavenly kingship. The kingship of heaven. The secret of the power and authority in the name of the King. Do you know that secret? Do you know it? The secret of the power and authority in the name of the King. The secret of the eternal throne and sovereignty of God. The secret of reigning with Christ in the present in this present evil world. I think of Ephesians two six. Made to sit together with him in heavenly places. I think of, of um, Revelation 5.10 where it says, Has made us a kingdom and priests unto God, and they reign upon the earth. They reign. Does that mean in the future the word is on its present? They reign. Oh, the secret of reigning Christ. The secret of a transcendent life. The secret of an overcoming life. Now, an overcoming life means you've got to be under to overcome. So you're under, but you overcome. It doesn't mean that you're all the time on top. Some people imagine. Never a dark moment. Never a trial. Never a doubt. But it means that you've got the secret of what to do with sin. Of what to do with temptation of what to do with Satan, of what to do with oppression and depression and all the other things. You've got the weapons of your warfare, are not carnal, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of satanic strongholds. That's what it means. The secrets of the kingdom. It doesn't just mean that you happen to know how to get into the kingdom. That is a secret. It's an elementary one. It doesn't mean that you happen to know who is the Savior. That is a secret to many, but it's an elementary one. But it's when you're in that you might grow up and get to understand the mysteries of the kingdom, the mysteries of the throne of God, the secret of the throne of God, how to reign with him, how to live with him in practical situations. We read of the keys of the kingdom. We read uh, that in Matthew chapter 16 and and verse 19, I will give unto thee, the Lord Jesus said to Peter, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom. What did he mean? Did he mean that Peter was the first pope? The bishop of Rome? He may well have been a bishop in Rome. But does it mean that he, in a peculiar way, had the keys? Not so, because if you turn over the page, the very same words and phrases are used concerning the church. I will give thee the keys of the kingdom, Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Over the page to chapter 18, verse 18. And what does the Lord say when you've told the church? I tell thee, whatsoever ye bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Keys are a symbol of authority. They are the things by which you lock a door and unlock a door. Very simple. Keys are something you lock something up and you unlock something. They, are, they therefore symbolize and signify in the Bible uh, the power and authority to unlock and to lock. Well, let me put it this way. This to me speaks of the, uh, the authority and power to unlock and unleash things, and to shut things, and bind things. Let me put it this way, if it's more simple. To Peter, and to the church, is given the key to the unlocking and unleashing of the authority and power of God. Oh, praise be to God, if you look at it like that, that you and I together have got the keys of the kingdom of heaven in our hands. It doesn't mean that we're big people. It doesn't mean that we're powerful people. It doesn't mean that we can throw our weight around. Well, but I if we do, we have a terrible enemy. But it does mean we've got the keys. We can unlock the door, open the door, and let the power flow in and deal with the situation. We've got the keys in the name of Jesus Christ to bind things on earth and, and the Lord says they'll be bound in heaven. And to loose things on earth and they'll be loosed on heaven. Oh, we could stop here, I'm sure, for a solid hour and think of missionary work, true missionary work, all over the world. And the key to it has been binding and loosing. Why, I think of some of the few people I've known, I think of Miss Liblick and Miss Smith. My goodness me, I never saw anything like that little flat in Portside. It was a revelation to me when I was just a young, young Christian in the Air Force. I went there. I was supposed to go there for convalescence. I'd never seen anything like it in my life. Uh, Miss Liblick was a, almost a matron. of the been Kanata Hospital, the biggest in Egypt. They were supposed to be retired. And I was told because of my condition, which was a peculiar one at that time, uh, she was the only one who, who would be able to understand it, diagnose it and treat it properly. Certainly the medical authorities in the R.E.F. had no idea at all. And so I went off. I'd never seen anything like it. The phone rang and I would hear muttering on the phone. And then I'd hear one of them come out and say, Alex, prayer. But they would go into the room and the door was shut. And through my thin bedroom wall, I could hear what was going on. My word, it was just tremendous. In the name of the Lord, they simply bound things. They simply loose things. They, they just went on and then there would be a quietness. And I would listen, <laughs> absolute quietness. And then I would hear something more. And then out they would come out of the room. It was finished. Sure enough, a bit later the phone would ring. And uh, we would see them all smiles at the lunch table, say, we had a wonderful victory today. Prayed about something, and the phone went a little later, and it was settled. Just binding and loosing. Many people thought that these couple of old missionaries retired there were a waste. Little did they know that those two were probably controlling Egypt. I always got the impression that I must be careful, and I don't digress. But I always had the impression with them they were rather like those things we used to see in the war on those Pathé newsreels of when those dive bombers came out of the sky and suddenly a, a bell rang and everyone ran their, 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 their tin hats on or whatever they were and ran for the gun and onto the gun and round they went and shot and shot and shot. And shot you know, until you saw a thing, boom, it was gone. Well, now, you laugh. But in actual fact, you see, that is prayer. Prayer isn't a shopping list of petitions. It, that's what it means. To have the keys of the kingdom, keys of the kingdom, you just unlock something. The door swings open, and the authority of God touches the situation on earth. Sometimes it's long prayer. Sometimes it's years of prayer. Sometimes it's holding on to something, grimly. But it is always the keys. For God says, he is the one, Jesus says, I am the one that openeth and no man shutteth. He says, I have the keys of David, key of David, I open, no one shut, I shut, no one opens. Oh, how wonderful it is not to think that we have any authority in ourselves, even as the church, but to understand that in his name we can bring to bear heavenly authority, spiritual authority, divine authority onto situations here on earth, keys of the kingdom. Yes, the church owns Christ's unique kingship. Indeed, she is intimately related to him, sharing his name and his very life. His church realizes the kingdom within herself and manifests it to this world. In other words, God's idea in us, his people, is that even in our little company like this, we should be an embodiment of the kingship of heaven. We should be an expression of the kingship of heaven. Here, heaven rules. Heaven rules. The kingdom of heaven has come. And we are sons of the kingdom. We understand the mysteries of the kingdom. We've got the keys of the kingdom. In one sense, a little company like this ought to be able to control a town, control an area, spiritually, by sheer life in Christ. Not just prayer, but sheer walking with Christ, because we are in union with him. We are the very embassy of heaven here on a wicked and rebellious earth insisting and proclaiming that Christ is God's enthroned king, the true king over the whole earth, and that finally he will come in power and in great glory, bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. That's our job. I don't know if you realize that, or whether you thought, as I used to think, that being a Christian was just a question of reading your Bible, saying your prayers, going to church, witnessing at work. Oh, it's much more than that. It's a thrilling thing to be a Christian. You're in the eternal kingdom of God's Son. You've been translated out of the authority of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of God's love. And you and I together are to be the very embassy of that kingship that represents that kingdom. We are to be here, as it were, the very manifesting of the authority of God's king on earth in practical situations. I think the most superficial reading of the book of Acts will suffice to show that the early church knew and experienced what the kingdom meant. Mm-hmm. Why, you've only just got to look through. I, we've read Matthew 16, verse 18 and 19. We've read Matthew 28, 18 to 20 about going therefore the Lord being with us and if you go on right the way through Acts Acts 1 and verse 3 where they come to him and say tell us when will you restore the kingdom when the Lord Jesus um, uh, spoke to them you better look at it perhaps Acts chapter 1 verse 3 when the Lord Jesus spoke to them about the kingdom 1 verse 3 to whom he also showed himself alive after his passion by many proofs appearing unto them at a the space of forty days, and speaking the things concerning the kingdom of God. And they didn't quite understand, for in verse 6 they say, When they were come together, they asked him, therefore saying, Lord, dost thou at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And then you see he goes on, Ye shall receive power when the Holy Spirit is come upon you, and ye shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth if you start to read through the book of acts in the light of what i've said you will find that the early church had a very real experience of what the kingdom meant and you will see it probably most expressed later in things like in acts chapter 8 verse 12 where it says and when they believed philip preaching good news concerning the kingdom of god Or if you turn to Acts chapter 20, and we find in verse 25, And now, behold, I know that ye all among whom I went about preaching the kingdom shall see my face no more. That's how Paul describes his ministry, preaching the kingdom. And then chapter 28 and verse 31, the last sight we ever have of Paul, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things concerning the Lord Jesus with all boldness, none forbidding him. What a wonderful phrase that is, preaching the kingship of God. A note, I say, that is missing. I think it's seen in their use of the name of Jesus. They preached in his name, they gathered in his name, they prayed in his name, they bound and loosed in his name. They healed in his name. They cast out demons in his name. But everything was in the name of Jesus. It does not just simply mean that we say in the name. It means that we've got an idea of the king. We understand the authority of the king. We understand that the kingdom has come to us and that we represent the kingdom. Now, I say it is this dogmatic position of faith that the devil hates, he will do anything, anywhere, to undermine that faith and rob the church of its authority and power. For there is nothing so damaging to Satan and his interests than when the church genuinely exercises the authority and power in the name of Jesus, and brings the kingdom of heaven heaven to bear upon satanic forces. You know, if the devil can't stop us being saved, and if he can't stop us meeting together, which are two things he's always trying to stop us, do, but when he finds he's failed uh, in uh, in stopping people from being saved, and failed in stopping uh, them come together in fellowship, in other words, he can't split them and divide them, Then he will do everything in his power to so oppress them, and so depress them, and so bind them, and so give them a sense of heaviness and darkness that they lose their confidence. And instead of standing in the might of God, in the power of the Holy Spirit, and resisting the enemy, they start to fall back. This explains, I do believe, very much of our history, and it explains very much of the history of all many other places where there's a true work of God. This clinging heaviness, this sense of the enemy dogging everything, this sense all the time of, of somehow or other we're in a battle, we're in a conflict. Why is it? Because the devil knows he's got to stop us from genuinely exercising the authority and power that is ours in the name of Jesus. If we once get that secret and start in simple faith, it doesn't need fireworks. Some people seem to think it does, but it doesn't. In simple faith, if you and I just stand up and resist the devil in the name of the Lord, first submitting ourselves to God, he flees. He knows, he's beaten, he doesn't stop, he goes. We miss some of those who in past years have prayed like that for us, often behind the scenes. Just tackling the enemy and resisting him in the name of the Lord, how few people know it. How few people have got the secret to it of just being able in simple faith to bind the enemy and cut him off from the servants of the Lord and from the work of God and from the children of God, from the youngest to the eldest. Oh, how we need it. I say that this sense often of oppression and darkness is the enemy's means whereby he would put fear into us, It's the winds and the waves. And we look at them instead of the Lord Jesus and we start to go down, we start to sink. We, 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 we look at the situations, we look at the complexity of it. We forget that the battle is won. It's not that we've got to win it, it's won. All we've got to do is stand up in the name of the Lord. Stand up, stand up, ye people. That's all. Just stand up in the name of the Lord and resist him. For we, as the church of God, the body of Christ, the King, are bringing the kingdom of heaven into collision with the authority of darkness. Have you ever realized that? Well, I don't want to put any fear into the hearts of those of you who are younger in Christ, but that's exactly what we're doing. You see, you can't be translated out of the authority of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son. Oh, and really understand the kingship of heaven without sooner or later we're in collision. We're on a collision course. We can't help it. We're a foreign element in this world. We're a kind of thorn in the side of the devil. We're a kind of um, rocket pointed at his vitals. Oh, he knows it. He knows it. He's got to somehow or other rob us of that authority and power. We, by virtue of union with Christ, are bringing, not ourselves, but the kingdom of heaven into collision with Satan. But you see, there's no need to fear. I think we'll end here. There's no need to fear. In us, and through us, The kingship of heaven transcends the authority of darkness. The prince of this world. You see, that's the point of the kingdom. We have not been given a kingdom which can be overcome. We we have not been given a kingdom which can be defeated. We have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Why? Why? Because the king has fought the battle and won. That's why. It's just a matter of time. God waits sometimes longer than we would. But it's just a matter of time. When the time's up, the last trumpets will sound and the Lord will return. It's as simple as that. Sooner the better. Sooner the better. But you don't have to fear. Because in us and through us, the kingship of heaven transcends the authority of the devil and all his minions. Greater is he is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Through the finished work of Christ. Through his present position as the enthroned triumphant head of the church. Through his indwelling of us by the Holy Spirit. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of heaven has won, is winning, and will win. We are on the victory side. We are on the victory side. Now, if you're a Christian, you may find everyone in the office is against you. Everyone's trying to trip you up. The whole atmosphere is alien to you. It, it, it means that you'll be defiled and corrupted and tripped up. But listen, dear child of God, you're on the victory side, Remember. You're on the victory side. Even if you fall, you're on the victory side. Even when you fall. I mustn't say that. So some think that they can fall. But even when you fall, you'll find that you're on the victory side. Because there's someone who's got an answer for your sin and will lovingly pick you up and take you on. Victory. Absolute victory. The signs, the miracles, the wonders, and much else. are are but the outskirts of his ways. They are but details signifying the presence of the kingship of heaven. Oh, we've got a lot to learn here, haven't we? Haven't we got a lot to learn here? But you know, our king can touch disease. Our king can touch Satan. Our king can break shackles our king can change lives there is nothing our king can't do nothing we've got so much to learn this house is in itself evidence for the kingship of heaven it's a miracle filled with little miracles I say little I don't know whether any miracle is little but it's uh, filled with miracles. it's a monument to the presence of the kingdom. And many of our lives, if not all our lives, are surely evidence for the presence of the kingdom. Who saved us? Who tore us out from this evil world and put us into Christ? Who has given us the kingdom? I say these things. Well, it's all very, very wonderful, really indeed. There I think we shall end this evening and we'll end I think by just reminding you that this insistence upon the sovereignty of God's Christ and the superiority of the kingdom of heaven over this earth is surely found in the pattern prayer which the Lord Jesus gave to us when he said these words our Father which art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come not a prayer a declaration thy kingdom come thy will be done as in heaven so on earth For thine is the kingdom, the power, the authority, and the glory, for ever and ever." Perhaps we ought to look a little bit more into the pattern prayer. And by doing so, perhaps we shall discover uh, the secret of the kingdom. May God help us. Mm. Now, dear Lord, we bow in thy presence. We do ask thee that thou wouldst write something of this upon our hearts. We thank thee that we've been born from above into thy kingdom. Lord, we could never have got into it of ourselves. Unworthy, unclean, ugly sinners, such as we. Yet, Lord, thou who art the king of love, the king of heaven. Thou hast stooped to save us. Dear Lord, we praise thee and we worship thee this night. Thou hast not only brought us into the kingdom, but thou hast given us a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And we thank thee for the king himself, utterly worthy, utterly worthy to be king of kings and lord of lords forever. (laughs) Oh, our Father, indeed, we worship thee and we praise thee. In the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Perhaps you'd like to say what we call the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive them the trespasses against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, for ever and ever. Amen. May the Lord show you the victory that has already been won in the kingdom and reign of His Son. May you know the deep, deep love of Jesus.